Ty Cobb, great ball player, but human garbage, right? Well, not so fast. Author Charles Learson explains on this crummy little podcast. Ty Cobb was the first member of Baseball Hall of Fame, but has a reputation as an absolutely deplorable human being. Charles Learson is the author of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, which came out last year and is coming out in paperback soon, and it's the first major book on Cobb in a few decades. Charles, thanks for joining this crummy little podcast. My pleasure, Jim. So, Charles, I'm a baseball fan, and I've spent the last 25 years or so thinking that Ty Cobb was this bellicose, aggressive, cheating racist. Uh, How wrong have I been about this guy? Well, he's no saint, and he's a human being like, like the rest of us. Uh, but he was not, he was not those things. He was not a racist. He was not a, uh, you know, a a horrible misanthropic human being with no friends, uh, whose funeral no one attended and all those other myths that go along with it. Uh, um, that's what I was able to find out to my surprise, because I started out in the camp that, you know, that, that you were in, I, I came to this, you know, thinking that, Ty Cobb was a, a great ball player, but a but a horrible human being, and that I would just find I'm a good reporter. I thought I'd find fresh examples of his being horrible, and I'd, I'd mix those in with the examples that other people had found, and and then off we'd go to the races, and we'd have a new Cobb biography. Um, but it didn't take me long, and I say with, with, with in all seriousness, it actually took me ten or fifteen minutes of, of serious research. Not, I mean, I did. I wound up doing more than four years of research on the book. But in the first ten or fifteen minutes, I realized that I, the myth of that that of that horrible, monstrous cob had started to crumble already as I as I went back to the original sources and started to to learn who the real man was. So it's, it took you fifteen minutes, but we've had decades of people writing about Cobb and, and had this, how did that happen? How did, how did, how did someone else not catch that? It's a key question, you know, and it's, it's a, um, it's, it's a strange combination of circumstances. I hate to say perfect storm because that's becoming such a cliche, but it's, it's uh, a strange combination of circumstances. And it's, it says something about the audience and the, and the tellers of the story, which are not strictly the media, but also individual fans. It says something about them as much as it says about, even more about them, I think, than it says about Cobb or baseball. I mean, what happened was uh, in the in the nineteen uh, late nineteen fifties, early sixties, Cobb set out to write a book, uh, one of those kind of standard, you know, my life in baseball kind of books. And and he was quite ill at that time. He was in his mid seventies and had a number of illnesses. And and they got him a, 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 a kind of a hack sports writer to be his ghostwriter, a guy named Al Stump. And uh, Cobb at this point. In, in uh, roughly 1960-61, was kind of fading from the scene. He was sort of a forgotten figure. He didn't he didn't um, stay involved in baseball after he retired, which was in 1928. So that was a long time ago, and uh, and the game had changed all around him. Kind of the, the now it was you know Cobb was the era of the split hands grip, and you pop the ball to an empty spot in the infield. Uh, you could lead the league in home runs, having seven, eight, nine home runs in his day for the year. Um, and uh, now by the 1960s, it was the era of Mantle and Maris and Willie Mays and Ted Williams and Stan Musial. And um, and the, the game had changed. So Cobb was a kind of a forgotten figure. And when his book came out, first of all, Cobb 
when he was he found he, they wouldn't show him the book as they were preparing it. Uh, Al Stump, his co-author, had spent only a couple of days with him and then gone off to, to, to put something together out of, uh, you know, his, his imagination largely. And um, and they wouldn't show it to him. And Cobb finally got a look at it. He tried to get that book stopped. He, he threatened lawsuits and unless it was rewritten or, or just canceled. But Cobb died before he could do much about that. And the book came out a couple of months after his death. Didn't do very well. And uh, um, a few months after that, Al Stump managed to pitch an idea he's always the uh always looking to make a buck stump and uh he managed to pitch the idea of my my cop's final months he called it although he had only spent days with him uh to a magazine called true which was one of those kind of pulpy salacious titillating barbershop magazines that don't exist anymore and um and he, to get four thousand dollars from true for this story which was quite a sum in those days he had a promise a very salacious, very over-the-top kind of story, and that's what he provided, a story of Cobb driving around in a drunken state and waving guns. Essentially, the Tommy Lee Jones movie, which which uh, Ron Shelton, the director, bought the screenwriters to that article. Um, when the article came out, it created, believe it or not, it created a sensation. Uh, and um, you have to remember, this was nine years before Jim Bouton's Ball Four, which was the first book to kind of rip the lid off baseball and show surprise, surprise, these guys are not choir boys. So it was also 1961. So it was a bit more, much more uh, decorous era. And you didn't write like this about people, but Cobb now was safely dead. And so the story came out and people were shocked and titillated and they began repeating it. Actually, the newspaper men of the day repeated it in, in the process of defending Cobb and saying, that's not the Cobb that I knew. And I was, I saw Cobb during these same months and he wasn't like that at all. But in, in the process of doing that, they kind of disseminated the story. And what Al Stump wound up doing was creating a fictional character by accident that, that people loved. And they loved this idea of this monstrous evil Cobb, this monstrous evil baseball player. And, uh, and they began to tell the tale and retell it and embroider on it like a game of telephone. In, in the 1980s, another author named Charles Alexander came along and wrote another biography of Cobb in which he added a layer of racism that even Stump hadn't had uh, in his work. And um, in the sense that Alexander talked about these three fistfights, very famous fistfights Cobb had, and Cobb did get in a lot of fights, uh, but he said that they were with black men, these three uh, fights. And, and it, it turned out when I went back to the historical evidence and the census reports and the birth certificates, these guys were all white, as it turned out. So uh, th those fights had nothing to do with racism. And we could talk about Cobb's attitude towards race. Uh, but but you, 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 so that, that that's how the ball got going. And, and, and you know, there's that line in the comes from the movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, when the, when the legend, <laughs> you know, beats the truth, you know, print the legend. And and that's what people did. They loved this story of this monstrous man. And it sort of made sense in light of the fact that Cobb was a very intense player in his day, very aggressive. Uh, he set out to be annoying he, he, in the sense that his philosophy was he wanted to be a mental hazard for the opposition, which was a revolutionary philosophy in, in 1905. And um, and and so that seemed to make sense with that Cobb that some of them remembered, but most people had forgotten. And uh, 
And so that's, believe it or not, that's how the story went. And it's like a, a snowball turning into an avalanche, you know, and that, and, and, and the, the internet came along and only kicked that into hyperspeed, that, that, that game of telephone. And so we're left now with the, the cob that we know now, who some people, you know, some people really don't want to drop their notion of, of this fictional character and realize there's a factual narrative that can be substituted for that. That's actually more interesting. That uh, Liberty Valance line actually was in my head while I was reading uh, reading your speech at Hillsdale when you were when the first introduction I had to this to this work. But that's a good line for this, and it's a little disturbing how easy it becomes for someone to get slapped with labels. But there's but as you mentioned, there's not a whole lot of evidence for this. Uh, as you researched this book and you saw that pattern that that there was more to the legend than there was to the to the truth were there any other people or events whether it's it's baseball or sports or anything else where you you started having them creep into the back of your mind and say well wow maybe this isn't the guy that we thought that was or maybe this event didn't happen the way everyone says it did yeah you know i i I haven't <laughs> the closest I've come to another example historically believe it or not is Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> and uh, no kid. uh who I'm 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 not a Poe expert but I'm told that that everything we know about Edgar Allan Poe this this sort of thing that he was like a sleazy drug addict uh uh child molester whatever people say about him uh isn't true and it's all based on a very parallel situation where someone wrote a biography uh, soon after his death, and uh, and people glommed onto that because they liked that s- story even even more than the truth, than the, the nuanced you know variegated truth. So I know about that, and I'm sure there are other examples. What what frightens me a little bit is is the fact that I'm part probably participating in this too, as I did with Cobb. That you know you you you, you who knows you know what 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 we assume and how it's. And how it's different. We've all had that experience of seeing, you know, uh, this is going to raise some hackles maybe. But when I see Barry Bonds interviewed on TV and I see the real Bonds talking, uh, he doesn't look so uh, evil or horrible to to me anymore when, when he gets out there. And maybe he's responsible in his case. It's a different age. He was in front of the media a lot. And maybe he's partly responsible for his own surly image. Uh, and maybe he's making an effort to change it now. But, but you know, what, what scares me is all these kind of landmines that are under the ground that we haven't stepped on yet, that we don't, we don't know, you know, uh, we don't know what we don't know, and we, don't, and we make assumptions. And the more we, and you know, like Cobb's racism, for example, if, if we can get into that, it is based on those three stories, but it's, it's even more so based on, on these, fact that Cobb was born in 1886 in rural Georgia to say, well, how could this guy not be a racist? You know, and and, and I, I, that's what I thought. And but when I I did, you know, I'm not, as I say, said in my speech, I'm not the Babe Ruth of researchers. I just applied normal uh, historical kind of uh, standards of research to a baseball player, which is not often done. And what I found in this case was that Cobb descended from a long line of abolitionists, that is, his great grandfather was a preacher who preached against slavery, 
and was run out of town for it. His, his grandfather was the equivalent of a conscientious objector. He signed up for the Confederate Army, but then refused to fight because of the slavery issue. And his Cox father was a state senator and a local educator who fought for the rights of his black constituents. His, his career was very short as a result, his political career, and, and, uh, and he broke up lynch mobs in town. Now, that's Cobb's father. The only the first time we see on the record Cobb saying anything about race is 1952 when, when he's asked about the integration of the Texas League by the Sporting News. And he says the Negro should be accepted wholeheartedly and not grudgingly. The Negro has the right to play professional sports and who's to say he has not. I love that quote because it, it really sounds like the feisty Cobb in there. Who's to say he is not? You'll have to fight me. At that point, Cobb had been attending Negro League games. He sat in the dugout with the players. He threw out the first ball at Negro League games. You can find his autograph on baseballs with Negro League stars. So the, the real Cobb and, and the myth in that case are 180 degrees apart. But people make their assumptions. Ken Burns, when he made his baseball movie, didn't bother to check that out at all because it, it fit nicely with his narrative. He he wanted to use Cobb as the, the counterbalance to Jackie Robinson, uh, the anti-Jackie Robinson, and, and he didn't want to look too hard uh, at that. Um, he, he was happy to accept that uh, assumption and have a villain in his story, which was great. And I think that's one of the reasons people cling to this myth, because a, a villain is kind of a fun, attractive thing as long as he's at a distance and can't really threaten me. Uh, and is kind of the victim of his own, uh, you know, desires and, and his own shortcomings. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's those assumptions that, that we make and we don't even realize we're making them, I think, that are that are dangerous. You know, people sometimes say to me, oh, this is revisionist history. And I say, well, maybe maybe it is. But what are you supposed to do with history when you find facts that contradict the myth? You know, one one of the themes I try to make in my in the speech that I made about this was that repetition is not evidence. You know, we've heard people say, how could this be? How could what you're saying be? I've heard this all my life. I don't know how many times people have said that to me, not people who've read the book, but before they read the book. How could it be? I've heard it all my life. A lot of them heard it from their father, you know, who passed down the sacred baseball wisdom. So it's 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 coming from a sacred place almost. And but a re repetition of an assertion. It's not evidence, even if it's made a million times. You know, as writers, we learn to construct paragraphs. We learn uh, the, the perfect paragraph has a topic sentence, which is an assertion. And then the next two sentences are facts and specifics that back up that assertion. So unless you can bring along the facts and the specifics that back up that assertion, you know, I don't want, I don't want to hear from you. I, I don't want to hear what I hear so often that, oh, how could you say that Cobb was an avowed racist? But where did you make this vow and how was it recorded and, and how, how, how does that jibe with, with, with all this, his actions and, and what else he said? You know, um, so it's it's a you know, history is a I don't know whether to be uh, exhilarated by the fact that I managed to find one case that's wrong or sort of depressed by the fact that I now I wonder how many others there are. <laughs> you know, you brought up Barry Bonds. He's a modern player. And thinking about Cobb's era, there's no radio, there's no TV, or no radio for most of it, I should say. Uh, certainly no TV. Uh, today we've got, you know, five ESPNs and countless sports blogs. Does today's media environment make it easier or harder for that that mythos to develop? 
Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I, I it, there's more people out there willing to willing to create an image for for each player. The players have, you know, it, it's interesting how professional sports has evolved uh, in the over the last century or so. When Cobb first came up, it was 1905. It was a very different era. Not um, there were there were more newspapers than there are now, and they covered baseball very thoroughly. So in that sense, there was there was more media. But as you say, there was no radio yet. There's very little moving footage of of, of Cobb, uh, and uh, and yet the press and the and the uh, and the players had a different uh, relationship. You know, the, <laughs> the newspaper men were making more than the players for one thing, and uh, and the players often Cobb would often have newspaper men to his house in the off season or even during the season, uh, they had a different, uh, a different kind of relationship today. I'm, I'm always amused when I see these guys, it's, it's like a locker room thing. You, no one wants to be too enthusiastic and, you know, or provide too much information, especially the younger guys, they just gather them, they drone and they get their way through an interview. And, and, and we have our, we, we, in our mind, we make our images of them. Um, yeah. And I guess when they get in, in trouble, you know, uh, they for steroids or something. They're usually not around. They drop out. They don't give interviews. So we're up. We can use our imagination. It, it's a it's a perplexing question. I think in in in, in Cobb's day, though, you could you probably had more control over over who you were because you could have the have the newspaper guy over to your house and and, and try to set set the record straight. Which which you know that's not going to happen anymore. Yeah, and it, even though, as you mentioned, there are more newspapers, everybody's I – mean, there's a delayed reaction to any coverage. So you don't have the instant gratification of of a blog or a – you know, some type of online media where, you know, people are always trying to attract more clicks. And so there's a little bit more – certainly a, a more – Tense relationship between the players and the media. Say the media in those days was 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 kind of working for the for the team in, in the sense you know, the team paid for their out of town travel and during the end of the season when the you know if they weren't in the pennant race and the crowds were getting thin you know they would hype the games and tell people to you know make sure you come out oh this is good you know they're planning for the future and they you know so. You don't you don't see that too much anymore. Uh, so it's it, it is a different relationship. Yeah. You know, Cobb comes from a different era. He's a different type of player. How do you think we would we would react to a, a player like Cobb today? Do you think he'd do you think he'd even make the majors? Do you think teams are looking for a guy like that? What do you mean when you say a guy like that? Well, it just it, I, I got to think that watching Cobb play, and this might be the legend taking over, but I got to think watching Ty Cobb play must have been something that was edge of your seat exciting like when i watch guys now who are i mean i think of ichiro suzuki in his heyday or ricky henderson in his heyday guys who when they get on are just absolutely disruptive on the bases they can they can get on any number of different ways it just feels like they're they're scrappers and that's what i think of when i think of Cobb. i think of a guy who goes out there and his objective is first base. And then once he's on first base, his objective is second base. And it's any way he gets there. Exactly. Yeah. It, it just seems like it's a, it's, it, it actually seems really exciting. It seems a lot more exciting than sitting around waiting for a three run Homer. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, a, 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 a sports writer of the day once said that Cobb getting a walk is more exciting than Babe Ruth getting a home run. 
uh, for exactly the reasons you, you said, because when, you know, it is exciting when Ruth hit a home run, uh, but it's over in a flash. Uh, but when Cobb got on first base, that's when the fun was just beginning because he would shuck and jive and trash talk and, and fake his way around the, the base pass one base at a time uh, in those days. And, I mean, here's a guy who once stole second, third, and home on three consecutive pitches. I mean, here's a guy who once turned a tap back to the pitcher's mound into an inside-the-park home run, and, and he didn't even slide. When he came home, <laughs> it, it, you know, so you know, any anything was possible when Cobb got on base and people, even if, you know, even if you were the out of town, even if he was, you know, the visiting player and he was a nemesis to your team, you had to some way, you know, grudgingly admire him. I mean, he got a he was given an award in Chicago for being the most popular out of town player. I mean, there's one little fact that also flies in the face of the, of the, of the myth of the everyone hated Cobb. that, that one little fact. I mean, and, and they get, what did they give him as an award? It was a set of books because he was always reading history books. He loved to read biographies of Napoleon. Uh, he was, oh, he was, he's read Les Miserables like constantly all of his life. He was reading and rereading it. Um, and uh, Mo Berg, the, the catcher who went to, uh, I think it was Princeton and Harvard. I forget which one for law school and which one for undergrad. Uh, said he would Cobb was an intellectual giant, and uh, uh, he, he wasn't a great public speaker. Cobb, so some people, you know, misunderstood that. But yeah, he was. An, he, he wasn't just those numbers. The numbers are incredible. I mean, his batting average is lifetime batting average is three sixty six or three sixty seven, depending on which side of that argument you want to take. And that's over 23 and a, and a half years in the major leagues. It's an incredible feat. It's still the highest batting average of all time. Uh, but he played, you know, a different in a different era in that, that dead ball era. And for, for those who don't know, that means exactly what it sounds like. The ball was not as lively. It didn't go as far. Uh, the home run leaders of the, you know, would at the end of the season would have seven, eight, nine, ten home runs. Uh, and uh, you, 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 were successful by bopping the ball to kind of empty spaces in the infield and, and advancing base by base. And the scores were more like hockey scores and, than they are today. And some people said it was more exciting. And, uh, and, and some people didn't like the change when Ruth came. 1920 was the era when the, the new live ball came in. Cobb was still playing. And Ruth was on the ascent at that point, switching from pitcher to outfielder, everyday player. And, um, and the two of them, you know, sort of cross paths heading in the other direction and uh and watching them not get along i said was one of the great joys of the of the early live ball era because they were they, they were not very friendly to each other in the beginning i imagine that must have been a disturbing experience for cobb watching the game that he'd played for 20 years changing before his eyes as some guy comes and just you know quick strike knock it over the fence he really resented it and really was curmudgeonly about it uh, and uh, because he'd spent a lot of time perfecting the game that he he grew up with and knew you know he had nine different kinds of slides Ty Cobb and uh, th this this speaks to the point of his his supposed viciousness and dirty play I mean they were all things of beauty and they were almost all of them were about giving you as little to touch as possible so he could get into the base my, my favorite one was the the cuttlefish slide he called it because he sprayed dirt in your face as he came in and uh, and blinded you so you couldn't see him to to tag him like a cuttlefish squirts ink. But uh, you know, and and the and the players in his day, to a man, defended him and his sliding and said it was a thing of beauty. And a guy named Wally Shang, who was a 
journeyman catcher in the American League said he, he was too pretty a slider to ever cut you up. And, uh, and, and Germany Schaefer, who was a teammate of Cobb, said he's a game square fellow who never hurt anyone with his spikes. And anyone who's ever strapped on a pair of spikes knows that to be true. I mean, the, the theme from the players that I, whose quotes that I read were all in defense of Cobb. And they were all about how, well, some of the civilians think he's a dirty player, but us, we, the people who play the game, we know, we know better. We know he's not. Now, Cobb believed that there was this, he called it my little patch. It was a space right in front of the bag that was not just his, but every runner's uh, right to, 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 to go into that. And if you wanted to put your arm or your hand or your foot in there, that was, as they said in those days, on your watch. But, but he, he had the right to do that. And I guess baseball was still sorting that out now, whether where you have the right to slide. But in his day, that was the accepted way. And he did it. But he was not a vicious slider or a, or, or a horrible, you know, human being on the bases. He was just unpredictable all the time. He, he sensed, he, he knew what the rhythms of the game were. And the rhythms of the game were pretty similar to what they are now. Guy gets a walk, he trots down to first base, everyone adjusts. And, uh, you know, and he, he would play with those rhythms and catch people off guard and do these incredible things and frustrate the opposition to the point where guys slammed down their gloves sometime or threw it up in the air just in frustration. And sometimes those guys got thrown out of the game for doing that on, on top of Cobb just coming in and making a fool out of them with his uh, his sliding. You know, he, he wanted to be a mental hazard for the opposition. That's an attitude that we kind of take for granted today, you know, especially in football even. Yeah, you know, Lawrence Taylor, he was a mental hazard for the opposition, and, and we, we admire him for that, you know. In Cobb's day in the early 20th century, when he first came up, that was thought to be a bit unsportsmanlike, to be a mental hazard for the opposition. A lot of people, their attitudes about sports were still rooted in the, in the 19th century, where you were, you know, you didn't make things difficult for the other guy. Uh, so that's part of where Cobb's dirty player reputation comes from, actually. Now, aside from Cobb, you've shined some light on this era before. You've got two previous books, uh, Blood and Smoke, A True Tale of Mystery Mayhem, and The Birth of the Indy 500. And Crazy Good, the true story of Dan Patch, the most famous horse in America, dealing with obviously different sports, uh, but IndyCar racing and horse racing. And it seems like such a romanticized era. There were more newspapers, but there was less immediate coverage. How tough is it to research this era? Well, the more newspapers makes is, is a good thing because, <laughs> uh, you know, Detroit would have like, you know, seven or eight daily newspapers. So there were, you know, finding them all is possible, in some cases more difficult than others. So, so, so that's a good thing. I mean, I think the really interesting thing about this era that, you know, in school, we called it the second industrial revolution. And if you look at the history of America, in the in the years after the Civil War, say from 1870 onward, it's the story of great inventions and and the world changing and becoming moving from the medieval really to to the, the world we know today. I mean, you had uh, electricity come in, you had uh, and and with that came you know movies and you had the automobile and I mean, really revolutionary fundamentally airplane. I mean, there are cases you know Civil War veterans, as I mentioned in the in the book about the Indy 500, Civil War veterans getting killed in auto accidents in in, in the, at the racetrack where cars flew into the stands. So it was this mixing and mingling of this 
of this era was that it was a very exciting time. And one of the things that happened, I mean, you had the rise of labor unions, which gave, uh, uh, you know, that people's hours, work hours decreased. And so they had more leisure time. They had more income. And so you had this rise of mass entertainment that came during this same period, too. And so you had the rise of vaudeville. You had when, when the technology was there, the movies came in. But you also had professional sports, organized professional sports, uh, which came in as, as never before. I mean, before the Civil War, sports was that was called like the bachelor period, they called it. And it was only for men, except for maybe horse racing. But, you know, men would go in the back of a bar and they'd watch guys fight or wrestle or they'd watch dog fighting or they'd watch rat baiting and all these lovely, you know, pre uh, early 19th century sports. And and after the war, it became a thing of, well, I, we need some entertainment for families. And that's why the American League was born. Uh, actually, because it came along a little bit after the National, National League was uh, started first as a, you know, a big league with a, with a schedule and you knew where, you know, 150 odd games and you knew where everyone was going to be. And, and, but the players were a little kind of rowdy. And uh, so American League came along to be a, a family, a PG rated version of that. Soon the players intermingled and they had the, the same problems. But it's really interesting to watch fans and participants alike figure out the protocols and how to act and the fans had to learn that they couldn't jump over the wall and chase the umpire around the field which they did in the early 19th century sometimes uh if they didn't like the call uh the week before Cobb came up to detroit in 1905 fans had jumped over the fence and chased the umpire into the clubhouse where he declared a forfeit for, uh, uh, you know, against Detroit because the fans had chased him off the field. There was often only one umpire on the field in those days. So fans had to figure out how to act. Not that they couldn't throw bottles. They were very abusive towards the players in those early days uh, until they kind of worked out a, a protocol. And then some of the players were abusive back, but, you know, they, they had to wor work this out. It's kind of, it's fascinating the things we take for granted that, to see the newspapers kind of wonder over the fact that people would spend their whole day uh, with, with, with the center of their whole day would be attending a sporting event or that grown men could make a living playing a game. You know, these things were shocking, puzzling, appalling to some people, but they're the things we take for granted now, of course. So you can buy Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, wherever fine books are sold. Uh, same goes for Charles Learson's other books. Charles, thank you very much for shining some light on Ty Cobb and joining this crummy little podcast. Thanks, Jim. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this crummy little podcast. If you want to hear more, check out www.crummylittlepodcast.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks again.